This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show. Another week, another Erling Haaland hat-trick, and once again, City are through to the FA Cup semi-finals. It seemed like a tricky test in the early stages, but by the end of the game, Vincent Company's Burnley were well and truly dispatched. On today's Blue Moon podcast, we'll discuss all of the key moments from that game, plus look ahead to a busy week that now involves another trip to Wembley next month. It's the international break now, which is an annoying momentum killer, but it gives us the chance to take a break from the current on-the-pitch success and engage in some wistful nostalgia. We're now halfway through City's 20th 20th season at the Etihad and there's been some very different and distinct eras at City in that time. We'll reflect on each of those later on in the show. We'll also squeeze in a few of your questions later on so we better get cracking. I'm David Mooney and I'm joined by City fans Rachel Hurdson. Evening. And Richard Burns. Hello there. Hello. Uh, Rachel, are you well? I'm really well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. um, How how can you not be well? Uh, The spring has sprung, the tulips and daffodils (laughs) around and the city are back where they belong. Spring has sprung. You could have told us on Saturday. I mean, that was uh, <laughs> it's a bit damp, but other than that... It, it, it was, but yeah, we, we're officially in spring now, aren't we, I think? Summer, British, was it 21st of March it starts? So, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's all good. And I think the clocks go forward at this weekend, don't they? Oh, yeah, so, so we, we lose some sleep. That's good, yeah. <laughs> we lose sleep, but it's light at night, so, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, swings and roundabouts. Richard, did, uh, are, you, uh, are you enjoying City at the moment? I mean, a, a 6-0 a, a, and a 7-0 in a week, that's not bad, is it? I mean, as um, as weeks go in football, you, you couldn't really ask for much more, could you? Unless those results would come against sort of Liverpool and United back to back. It's it's an ideal week. Loads of goals, non-conceded, really good performances. Uh, and at the absolute perfect time in the season to be putting uh, this kind of form together. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I am pretty well, although... Uh, I didn't realise that I was losing an hour's sleep this week. And let me tell you, with a two and a half year old who doesn't sleep the best anyway, that is not welcome news to have been given. <laughs> well, it was going to come along sooner or later, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's start with, uh, well, I mean, this show is basically becoming an excuse now and an exercise in letting everybody who we have on just say how amazing Erling Haaland is. So, uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll start with you on this one because another hat trick uh, for him, It's it's getting ridiculous this now, but he, he, he won't stop doing what he's doing. Um, nine goals in his last three games. That, like, how, how, do you, how do you put that into words? It's really difficult to. I think everybody's running out of superlatives now, and I don't think anybody is really surprised with what he's doing. That's, that's the amazing thing. No, it's, it's not come as any massive surprise. He's normalised ridiculousness, hasn't he? It's weird. Yeah, it, it's mad. And it was funny, actually, because I had a bit of Sky Sports News on before, and there's so much chat about Marcus Rashford and how he is, you know, the top one of the top strikers in Europe at the minute, blah, blah, blah. Well, number one, Ivan Tony, I think, has scored more goals than him. And number two... Uh, Harland's got double his tally in the Premier League, so it's just it. it like I say, it, it, it's almost like now is that good that it's expected, and I think what we can easily say is that it has put that conversation to bed of our city a better team without Harland in. Surely that's got to be dead and buried now. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? I mean, Richard, um, I said nine goals in his last three games. Um, th- that's three get so obviously averaging a hat trick in the, in a game in the last three games, but like I mean that's mad to start with. But he, like those three games are better than the entire scoring career at City of Benjani who got seven 
in his entire time at City. Nolito <laughs> and Penza, Sturridge and Joe all got six. Rolando Bianchi got five. Roque Santa Cruz got four. Like they all had like a season, a season and a half, a little bit longer at City. You know, that's that's just Haaland's last three games that he's bettered that in. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no end to the uh, to the stats that you can pull out and and still sort of not really get close to. I think like really establishing the magnitude of what he's doing because it it's absolutely absurd. I think my my favorite stat and forgive me if this was one that you were going to pull out David because I know that you like it too but the he's he's got more there are more games at the Etihad where he's scored hat-tricks than games where he's not scored a goal. Like to as a striker if you go into any game statistically more likely to score a hat-trick than not score <laughs> over what is like a you know if that was the start of the season and we'd played one game at the Etihad, then obviously, you know, it'd be like, it'd be a pointless stat. And one of those that you sort of think is wheeled out just for the sake of some sort of like Twitter content. But like, we're at a, a really end, good it, sample it, yeah, size. It's for that the end stat of March. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, I mean, it is like, he's it, normalised greatness. You sort of, any stat, any striker stats that you try and put next to that are, are not going to compare. If you then start extrapolating it, it's, you know, if he stuck around, how quickly you'd break Aguero's record, how quickly you'd break Shearer's record in the Premier League. Like, these are the, the kind of things that when they happen, you think we might never see the like again. And for Haaland, you sort of thinking, well, we might see a hat-trick in his next game. Like, you, you just wouldn't be surprised. He gets to a point in a game where once he scores... I sort of assume he's probably going to score a hat trick if he scores early <laughs> enough, and certainly if he's got two by half time, it's then it feels on, inevitable it? Yeah. that the third is coming. It's um, it's just the most extraordinary, extraordinary gift. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, Rachel, the, the weird thing about that is, like, you don't even like we all sit here and we talk about Aguero as one of the greatest strikers that the Premier League's ever seen. You never even got that sense from him, from someone who you could rely on when the chips were down and you needed a goal. Sergio Aguero would stand up and and, and be counted, and it's just like Haaland's on about ten levels higher than that. I know it's it's bonkers. You can't. Like I say, Aguero's one of the best strikers the Premier Premier League's ever seen. And yet, this kid's surpassing him. At 22, that's the other thing. He's frightening. He's 22 years of age. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just a once-in-a-generation phenomenon. I don't think we'll see the likes of him again for, for some time. And it's it's everything about him as well. It's his whole, you know, the the physicality, the the, the mentality, everything. Uh, uh, he, he plays every every game and he comes off with the pitch with a smile on his face. He's he's absolutely loving it. And it's um, the way it's also the way the he says are. like yeah, it's it's also the way he says things like yeah, I I did score five, but you know those two I missed. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know if you saw there was a piece that um, Alan Shearer did actually. It might have been on Amazon uh, before the Arsenal game. Um, and he was talking about him, and again, comes across as a such a humble lad, and he and he was really, you know, he was like, "No, nah, I'm. This is not the finished product. You know, there's a lot more to come from me. You know, I I, I do think about those chances that I have and and have missed, and and there are some. You know, we've seen it. You know, you know, think about the game at Forest, for example, is just one of those freak games that you know if we were playing, still playing now, we probably wouldn't have scored. But it's those chances that he's rude means we think there is probably more to come. It's it's phenomenal. It really is. It's just so good to watch. And, you know, it, it, it does make me laugh. There, You know, the, the poor lad who 
went on his uh, YouTube channel stating that it was disrespectful to the likes of Son and Salah and everybody else that Haaland was going to come along and win Golden Boot as, as one of his you know colleagues in the studio predicted. That poor lad now just looks like a complete muppet, doesn't he? <laughs> um, I've got two more stats for you, Richard. Um, oh, like I said, there was nine goals in three games. That's, that scoring spell, that three-game period, is better than 142 strikers in City's history that they've had in like that, that have had careers at City. Um, and on top of that, in total, Erling Haaland is three goals behind the total that Nicholas Anelka scored for City, and Anelka played 103 games. Wow! And he was and he was quite good. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. It's I mean it, it is like really sort of running out of words. I think when you, um, Rachel's right to sort of mention his age, because even the players that you can sort of most closely compare to him, just for numbers, not in style of play, but like, they, you know, sort of really easy to default to Messi and Ronaldo as two players who scored so many goals that it sort of made all of the stats irrelevant and you could only really compare them to themselves or or each other. Um, and, and Haaland is already in that bracket, but before either of those two got there, um, and and I, I sort of struggle for what better reference point there could be for him, like, like hot off the, I suppose he's the next generation along from uh, from those two, and he, I think like one of the things about him as well, like that just to pick up on what Rachel said, like to, to listen to him, it is right that he's humble in the sense that. He knows that there's more to do, more to improve. He talks very well about sort of being here to learn. But he also is very, very aware of his quality. And, you know, how could you not be when you're scoring 42 goals in three games or whatever it is? When, you, when you're literally <laughs> making a mockery of record books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, he's he's not shy about saying that he's aware of his quality. He was only speaking, was it last week, when he was saying, sort of, you know, City didn't need me to win them the league because they win the league all the time anyway you do the maths in terms of like how good I am in the Champions League and what City haven't won yet. And you'll work out why I'm here. And I find that kind of thing really interesting because he's so understated and to listen to, I'll be honest, he's almost boring. Like, you know, he's not a, he's not somebody who off the pitch I would describe as a charismatic speaker, but on the pitch, he just, he wears his, I mean, we're talking about a megastar and he wears it so well. Like he never, there's no sense of pressure on him on the pitch. He just looks like he he just plays so freely. Um, he he just wants to be kicking a ball in a net, and fortunately, he, he does it pretty well. It's he just wears that that mega stardom. He's so great to just watch at the game. You can't take you. I find him quite mesmeric to watch. You can't take your eyes off him because of his movement round the box and his anticipation. And do you remember when they made that film about Zidane? And they just followed him around the pitch for however long. Mm. It's almost like the player cam that I think is probably a bit dated now. But that on Haaland is just brilliant. Just to watch how he operates, how he moves, how he pulls away from defenders, how he's just one step ahead all the time, anticipating where, you know, pointing where he wants the ball to be played, anticipating the balls from the likes of De Bruyne. It's just, it. We're just so fortunate to. To, to watch it, I think that's the thing, you know, we, we, we've been so blessed over however many years since, you know, well, well, some people would argue since, you know, 1989 we've been blessed to watch this, <laughs> but, but certainly, you know, since 2008 we've been, we've been blessed to watch some really great players at, at City, but Haaland's got to be up there in the top, top five already for me, you know, yeah. and that's, 
after you know one not even one whole season it's just yeah it's pretty mind-blowing really and and it's interesting you talk about sort of Messi and Ronaldo and them being the the two comparators I think like you say next generation for me I think the next debate will be Haaland or Mbappe and that's already sort mm. of emerging a little bit isn't it in terms of who's the better of the two. But I, I think those two will be slogging it out for the Ballon d'Ors for, for years to come. Yeah. Um, it was a different kind of blessed in the in the 90s, wasn't it? That was... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it was it, it was a def- very, very much redefining what blessed was to be a City fan, char- I think. It was yeah. character building. It was <laughs> yeah. character building. Uh, yeah. R- Richard, do you ever get giddy watching him? Like it's it's a weird question, I know, but like sometimes he's running through on goal, and it happened against Burnley that like the moment when he goes through on that uh, that pass that sent him one on one for the opening goal, I just got the giggles. Yeah, I mean, I I have I think to take I, I guess an amusing end to that question and maybe um, an overly serious direction. I've had a sense for quite a while watching City under Pep that. Like, this is probably the best it's ever going to be. Like, when Pep goes, well, you know, City are well-resourced, clearly. They're going to attract good managers. They're going to attract good players. But for what I enjoy watching, for what I uh, sort of hoped City could turn themselves into um, when the money came in, like, Pep was always my dream manager, yada, yada, yada. And so, I like, I have this really sort of conscious sense when I go and watch them play and seeing, you know, over the years, David Silvers, Aguero's, De Bruyne's, like... I have this sense of really, really trying to take it in and just appreciate it as it's happening in front of me. And because I, I genuinely think like this might be the most I ever enjoy watching City just purely for the quality of the football. And Haaland is that just to another extreme because we are like once in a once in a generation player is one way to put it. Like to see a player like this play for your team. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say like it's once in a lifetime. Yeah. And I think it's, I'd like, my feeling is, I don't think this is a particularly insightful thing to say. I don't think he's going to be a lifer at City. I think there's every chance that um, he will want to, as has already been hinted at by his dad, by his agents, that he would, will want to test himself in other leagues. And I sort of think like, fair enough, you know, he doesn't owe us anything. Um, so I think, like I feel that even more acutely because I think we might have him for a more sort of condensed a more condensed amount of time, um, but we're probably still going to see him score <laughs> more goals than anybody's ever scored if he if he sticks around for what four years, five years, <laughs> two 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 uh, seasons breaks the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do I do get um, the giddy would be one way to put it, but that sense of just like enjoy this whilst it's happening and like don't get too flustered by what the outside noise is about. Like, is this a better team without him or are they still working it out? Like, yeah, great because if they're still working out, then that means it's only going to get better. And yeah. that is a tantalising thought. Yeah. Um, Rachel, while things are getting better, um, I mean, it's I, I do feel like all this discussion, we just spent 15 minutes waxing lyrical about Erling Haaland. And yeah, City have got a player in Julian Alvarez who, were Haaland not here, we'd be sitting here going, God, hasn't he been a great signing, an absolute steal, and, and look at the impact he's having. And yet that's that's going under the radar because of Haaland. So let's let's give Alvarez his dues. What what do you make of how he's been doing recently? Do you mean do you mean World Cup winner Alvarez? That yeah, that, even really that, even that understated get, World Cup thing doesn't yeah. even get in the starting eleven. It's, I mean, again, that's that's just testimony to Haaland. He's walking to any other team in the Premier League. That's the bonkers thing. I think he's that good. He's he's probably 
he's probably a little bit more versatile than than um, Haaland, I think, in terms of where he can play. Um, hasn't necessarily got the physicality and the presence that Haaland has. However, his strength on the ball, and I think he's got a low centre of gravity, a bit like Aguero had, didn't, hasn't he? So um, he does use his, his his body strength to, you know, that is one, still one of his assets. Perhaps not obviously in the same league as as, as Haaland, but yeah, he's been nothing short of phenomenal. And, and the, the, the good thing about, I was only talking about this the other day, actually, and after the game thinking, you know, the way that Pep's managed the squad, okay, we all sometimes scratch our head in terms of team selection, but we're coming into the business end of the season now with the likes of Alvarez and Foden, who, again, two world-class players who are hungry and fresh. And, you know, again, you've got to take your hat off to to, to Pep for, for negating our way through this season with the World Cup in the middle and everything else. And, um, you know, the fact that Alvarez hasn't, like you said, hit the headlines. And yet, I think there was, I can't, who was it in the Champions League now where he scored two and he should have had three? Um, arguably should have had a hat-trick at the weekend as well. You know, like you say, any other team, he would be hitting the headlines. It's purely the fact that, that Haaland is, you know, the, the, the attention on him. And similarly as well, we've not conceded a goal in two games and yet that isn't spoken about. Diaz has come, and I know we'll, we'll talk about Diaz, uh, no doubt, later on in the, in this podcast, but, um, you know, the fact that the defence have a, a, don't really look like conceding either. You know, our goalkeepers are so blessed in that they, 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 they literally have the deck chairs out half the time yeah. in some of the games. But, but yeah, Alvarez, phenomenal. I think, you know, he can play on the, um, on the wing and cut inside, can play straight through the middle. Uh, his work rate is phenomenal. He's part of, you know, the high press is phenomenal. He's, he's got it all. So I, I'm really, really comfortable with, um, you know, when we talk about having zero strikers, I mean, and I, I always thought that was a little bit disrespectful to Gabriel, Gabriel Jesus last season. But um, having gone from having very little option up front to having Alvarez and Haaland is just incredible. Yeah, and I mean Haaland and Alvarez, Richard. Um, normally, when when Alvarez starts the game alongside Haaland, it usually means that De Bruyne hasn't started. And yet against Burnley, uh, all three of them played, and my word, the three of them could link up. Yeah, I, I mean it. It looks really good, doesn't it? And like sometimes, like I, I've said many times on this podcast that I, I would never profess to be um, any kind of like tactical analyst or, or, or tactical expert which is really helpful in this kind of conversation because sometimes it like it almost is as simple as that's three I, I would say world-class players maybe Alvarez has got a little bit to do to fully, like establish himself in that bracket but in terms of like just raw talent and yeah and, like do like, more than win a world cup yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah I mean you know um, I was trying to think of a bad player in Argentina's team then, but... Um, Otamendi, obviously. Yeah, Otamendi's a World Cup winner, probably not world-class. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, he's, you've got three players who are in or touching that bracket um, or, you know, going to get there. And sometimes it sort of is just as simple as there's a way to get three really good players into the team together and it work. Because, of course, there is. Because they're really, really talented footballers. So, of course, they'll work out how to play together. And it just so happens that they're managed by a tactical genius who will find a way to make them work. It's really encouraging because, sort of, you know, apart from the importance of the running that we've got coming up, throwing forward, this team is going to start to look pretty different. I think it's... There's every chance that Gondwan leaves, if not a likelihood at this point. There's every chance that this is a summer that Silver finally gets his move and 
that starts to, whilst obviously they'll dip into the transfer market, like it does start to open up different options to Pep again and different solutions to find, which obviously he thrives on. So to know that there's a like potentially a very near future where Alvarez, De Bruyne and Haaland can all play together more regularly is great. It's great for managing the squad. It's great for their happiness. And if it brings the best out of the three of them, as it has done in the last, um, like on most recent evidence, then again, it's just another one of those things. Like it's great for now and it's really exciting to think about the next iteration of this squad. Yeah, Richard, a bit, uh, a bit of a, a a downer, I guess, is that the international break comes along just as De Bruyne has hit form again. Because we've been we've been calling, we, we, well, we've been saying that we that he's desperately needed to find something recently, and it's it seems to have clicked for him. And now he's got to have a week off or on and off uh, with Belgium. Yeah, but then, I mean, yeah, it is like you you. When you're in sort of good, um, you know, you've got a, a good rhythm and you're in form, then of course you want to continue the momentum. Um, but then I suppose like the glass half full side of that is we had like the, you know, the ultimate international break before the World Cup that we went into on the back of um, a, a stoppage time defeat that was really damaging to us. And like that feeling carries and it lingers. And so does a positive feeling. And so we'll come back against Liverpool with them not been having uh, like a, a fantastic time of it to say the least and city will come in sort of remembering what their last two um last two games were and obviously you know it goes longer than that they're in a good run of form but in terms of the like absolute mega wins um like I, I, that's i think probably a nice feeling to have around the club for an international break and it, it beats what we went into the world cup with yeah um so yeah and and under brian specifically then yeah, I don't know. Does Belgium always bring the best out of him? Maybe not, but under new management, maybe that'll be a different thing for him. Um, and yeah, he'll. I'm sure he'll come back still feeling pretty fresh and, and in the same mood that he's left on. You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. The other aspect of the Burnley game, Rachel, was uh, that Phil Foden, obviously, who has been in sublime form in the last few weeks. Um, I thought he was taking an absolute kick in in that game, which uh, worried me a little bit with that foot injury he has that keeps coming back. Yeah, I'm hoping it's something or nothing and that the physios can sort him out. You're right, he was targeted against Burnley, but I didn't expect anything less, to be perfectly honest. Um, but no, hopefully he'll, he'll, he'll get over that. And again, we talk about the international break not coming at a great time. Already, I think Haaland's pulled out of the Norwegian squad, hasn't he? With, yeah. with some kind of injury. I don't know how severe that is. Um, but I was assuming that Foden would do the same if, if this foot injury was a problem to him. And I've not heard anything of the sort. So I'm hoping it's all right. Yeah. Uh, well, Rachel, let's uh, let's give Diaz his dues as well, because um, we're going to finish the first part of the show by uh, by taking a look at the defence. Um, it's it's his return, really, isn't it? That's that that's kind of shored things up in the last few weeks. Most definitely. Yeah, I think was it was it the Arsenal game when he came back? I can't remember which game. I'm pretty sure it was Arsenal after the Arsenal game. I'm I'm, I'm going to say this now and then look an idiot if he didn't start that <laughs> night. But I'm 99 percent sure that he did. And I remember thinking. He has to play. If he is fit, he has to play. I, I know that Guardiola's got a habit of changing it around and we've played 19, 20, however many different combinations it is across the back four this season. But for me, if Diaz is fit, he starts. There's no two ways about it. He 
bring something to that defence that it, it's almost like, and I hate to say it as a comparison, but unfortunately it's true. It's like a peak Van Dyke. Van Dyke, when he was good, he got another 20, 30% out of Robertson and um, Alexander Arnold and whoever else was playing against with, with him alongside him, Matip or whoever it might have been. And and that to me is what Diaz brings. You know, he, he's obviously a leader. Um, you can see how he directs people all over the pitch, you know, telling people where they need to be. You can see him, him motivating everybody else. For me, he he is a phenomenon and he has to start. He has to start. If he is fit, that, that I, I get that Pep changes it around. I get that we've got to accommodate injuries, etc. But if he is fit, he needs to be that first name on the team sheet for me now. Yeah. Um, bad news for you, Rachel. Uh, he did start against Arsenal, but he came back the week before against Aston Villa. Oh, well, <laughs> no, well, it was, Ars- it was, I remember it was Arsenal that it was definitely the Arsenal game that I remember thinking he has to, I remember at one point he did a tackle and he won, won a tackle at, at the outside of the edge of the box and he gave himself a little fist pump when he won it. I don't know if you remember that moment. I'm sure that was in the Arsenal game. Yeah. God, he's a walking Instagram meme, isn't he? That's all he is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what he does. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah, positivity and, yeah, good vibes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Richard, um, as much as, as Diaz has shored things up uh, in the last few weeks, I, I really feel bad going into the, the defensive chat going about going on about how, how well he's done because Nathan Ake, I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for this season. Yeah, I think with Ake, like, he, he's been brilliant, but it's different to Diaz because Diaz, like, has been... He started spectacularly well for City. And so even, I guess, when he's out of form, maybe it sometimes doesn't get picked up as quickly or he had more credit in the bank. Um, and so comes back and as soon as he's brilliant again, then it plays into what we already knew about him. Whereas with Aki, it took him a while to really break into the first team because no matter your quality... If you're the best team in the country, arguably the best team in Europe, arguably the best team in the world at, at times that he's been at City, then like if you have four players in a position, then one of them has to be the least good or the one who at least plays the least. And I think there were times when I would say Aki justified that earlier on in his City career because not through a lack of quality, but through lack of match rhythm, lack of... Um, you know, an established partnership with, with any of his teammates. And injuries, actually, what yeah. Yeah, of course, injuries, yeah. Um, and so from, I think, it's not just this season. He was pretty good towards the back end of last season as well, as I recall. He played some, um, played a pretty important role at times. And and this season, he's just, it's strength to strength. Like, he's, he's at the point now where I'm disappointed if he's not playing. And that doesn't mean I'm disappointed to see any of his replacements because it's an outrageously talented defence man for man. But I would rather see him start than not. And that's the challenge that he's now given to all of those, all of his teammates that are competing with him for a place. He is setting a standard where he has to be one of the first names on the team sheet. And it's not just because of his quality. It's the example that you set when you decline a transfer. I mean, imagine how different things would look for him now if he was at Chelsea. Would he be playing? He'd be part of a sort of 600-man squad that, Nobody knows who's going to play week to week. Nobody knows what the best team is. And actually, Aki's fighting for three trophies. And would you leave him out of a team in a big league game, an FA Cup final or a Champions League final? Because I wouldn't. No, and I feel right like now. Pep wouldn't yeah. at the moment. And it's that, it's that old thing that, like, I guess, maybe a fairly trite comparison, but 
it's not that dissimilar to how Zinchenko established himself and became one of Pep's favourites, became a crowd favourite. He, he, he sort of fought against the odds to become a really, really valuable member of the team. Yeah. Um, just in terms of, I mean, there, there is a strange paradox here, Rachel, as well, that you look at, at Ake and, and Diaz in particular, who I would I would describe them as you kind of defending defenders. They're, they're maybe not as good on the ball as some of City's other defenders, but they, they're the ones that you can trust to stick a boot in when they really need to. I mean, Diaz's tackle on, uh, against Burnley was ridiculous in the in the box when, uh, when, yeah. when, when, he, when he, by rights, he should have given away a penalty, but didn't. Um, you look at those two as, as as your proper old school defenders, and yet you've got players like Stones and Laporte. Who, I mean, most weeks we'd sit here and say, "Well, those are the ball playing defenders, and those are the players that I'd want in the team right now." And yeah, sure, City haven't got any fullbacks, so it's quite easy to squeeze four centre backs in sometimes. Um, but the, it's almost a case of a, a real balancing act now between whether you want the, the players that are going to keep it tight and, and defend really well, or the players that are going to help you pass it out from the back. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky one because you could argue that Cancelo was maybe technically a bit better on the ball than Ake, but I'd rather have Ake any day of the week because, like you say, because the defensive solidity that he brings. Um, it, I'm not going to say there's a weakness to Ake's game going forward because I think that's really unfair on him because he's not a natural left back. But yeah, we've not started. But we've 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 started to see him, you know, the link up play with Grealish is getting much better. He's getting forward. He obviously got the goal against Arsenal in the FA Cup from, you know, getting into an advanced position. We're starting to see him actually add a little bit more value in the in the final third. So yeah, I think I think most people are giving him the credit that he deserves now though. I think, you know, I I'm in a similar camp to, to Richard in that, you know, last season I didn't I was maybe disappointed if I saw Ake's name on the, the the team sheet, which was, which you know is is now ridiculous because, like you say, you 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 want him playing, and you know, I, I still obviously think we're going to go out and get an out and out left. Or I would expect the club to go out and buy an out and out left back in the summer, um, but I think Ake's done an absolutely outstanding job there, and it's quite funny actually that this left back position has been our a bit of our Achilles heel over the last few years. And yet, you know, you think about the players who've come in and, and done a job for us there, and they're all now what I would say were fans' favourites in, in Zinchenko, in Ake. Even Fabian Delph had a season when he played there and he was brilliant at left-back. It's it's weird that it's become this, this, you know, this position for us that's been really difficult to fill. And yet, players have gone in and done what's been asked of them and, and you know, their reputation and their... Um, credibility has increased as a consequence. Yeah, I was going to say, though, you, do, you you seem very optimistic that City would go out and get a left-back, yet the evidence of the last few years suggests that they're not going to. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. I mean, with Cancelo, I don't think we'll be, be coming back. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it will be a priority in the summer. We'll, 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 we'll see, like you say. <laughs> Who knows, because we've been saying that for four or five seasons now, like you say. Yeah. Now then, moving on. And at the end of this season, City will have been at the Etihad for 20 years. Throughout that time, things have changed significantly and there have been several different eras for the club with what feels like more than 20 years worth of history packed into the last two decades. To talk about title wins, European runs, goal droughts and false dawns, I've been speaking to Dom Farrell, Adam Carter and Dan Burke, introduced here by Sam Roscoe. Kevin Keegan oversaw the move from Main Road to the city of Manchester Stadium in the summer of 2003. Things were on the up, 
and for the first time since the mid-90s, City were an established Premier League side. But it's come through for Nicholas Anelka, who will become the first ever scorer at the City of Manchester Stadium. Their first season at the new ground would see European football return in the shape of the UEFA Cup. It's a big night for us because, uh, you know, we're in Europe. I never expected it. I, uh, we didn't earn it by the conventional means. As you know, we, we, we were, we've earned it through the Fair Play League, but nevertheless, we're in there and it's the first time for 25 years. But it also saw a fight for survival, as City got dragged into a relegation battle. Crossed in towards Watchup! Fighting for their lives! Manchester City take the lead! Manchester City's first win for seven weeks, and it's not come a day too soon. It looks like they will survive. So that's 20 years ago uh, this August, Dan. Uh, time flies, doesn't it? What did you think of the uh, the City of Manchester Stadium when, when we first arrived there? Well, like all City fans, I uh, I left May Road with an extremely heavy heart. I was really sad to, sad to leave May Road, but I think, you know, if not all City fans, most City fans knew that it was a positive step for the club at the time. It was something that needed to happen. You know, May Road was quite a small ground, uh, a little bit little bit run down, a little bit dilapidated. We needed this... this it, this big leap in, in the club's history, really, and this uh, this move to a new stadium was a really exciting thing. And you know, I went to the Commonwealth Games before we got the stadium and saw what it was like. And then when they transformed the stadium for City, it was um, it was really really impressive. You know, going to that that first friendly against Barcelona was uh, was a really brilliant day. And uh, yeah, it was just a really exciting time for the club, a real kind of uh, new dawn, really. Can I one up you on the going to the Commonwealth Games? Because uh, I was in the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> Uh, I was I was one of the school kids that was uh, dancing in the um, opening ceremony, and uh, they bust us in. They got us out. We did the routine that we'd been practicing for probably about a year, um, and then they bust us out again without even getting to see the rest of the ceremony. <laughs> well, do you know I auditioned for that and uh, didn't get it? So um, you're a better dancer than I am. Clearly, <laughs> I am. I am not a good dancer. Um, Adam, we we heard there a little roundup of that first season. Um, what are your memories of it? Because there was this, there was this dichotomy of they, yeah, it was great they were back in Europe again, and then that ended far too soon. And then you know they, they spent the season struggling, and 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 they must have gone what three or four months in there without winning a game. Yeah, I remember just I felt like that was the first step on us arriving on like a European stage because of the way the ground was compared to Main Road. Obviously, I love Main Road. But I remember that move to the Etihad or uh, City of Manchester Stadium, as it was then, and just thinking, oh, this is what it must be like to play at these stadiums all the time. So it felt like we had the real, you know, the real structure to become a European club in the near future. So um, yeah, I was really pleased with the with the move. And then you just played that clip around where we nearly got relegated. I remember being petrified and being relegated in this amazing new stadium. That's why I kind of, how typical city that my first memory of this amazing new, uh, you know, positive move is that I'm petrified that we were going to get relegated at the end of it. So that's just come flooding back to me. But yeah, absolutely loved it, even though I loved Main Rose. It was a, a real joy for me. Yeah. Uh, Dom, in many ways, it was it was good that it was Keegan that was overseeing it because even though it did peter out for him, and we'll come to that shortly, uh, th- like the the football Keegan had produced at the end of Main Road's time and, and even in the early days at the Etihad and, and the City of Manchester Stadium, it was it, it was it almost made it a worthy thing, didn't it? It, it added a little bit more value to it than, than the stuff that would come in the years that followed. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there were some big wins early on the season. Did they beat Bolton 6 2? Yeah. Like, generally, the, 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 the Bolton game everyone always remembers in the first years at the Etihad is that 1 0 defeat where City at <laughs> the post about six times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it was, there, were, there were the odd like swashbuckling ones. Like, obviously, there was the Derby win with Wright Phillips bringing the house down that was brilliant. But Keegan had kind of lost the plot by that point, hadn't he, with all due respect? I mean, they, they, they finished, I remember they finished ninth in the first year, but the last season at Main Road. Which was an incredible return for a promoted team, but he he decided that was like he got in a big mood about that and decided that he was going to sign like sort of the, the signings for that new stadium was sort of like and maybe this shows what I was spending doing with my time at that point. It was like a sort of ninety seven ninety eight championship manager dream team, like Boss Veltman, Manaman, Tarna, all them lads who were really good about four years earlier, but um were old and not as good by the time they got to City. And yeah, it all ended up a bit hairy. But you, you then did get one of the first great moments at the stadium with that um, Paolo Wanchops winner against Newcastle in like the game that was big squeaky bum time. Uh, his goal from an Elkers cross. I, I, I remember that being a proper bedlam in the ground. And probably in the first one of the first moments they really had that there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Dan Dom's mentioned the the Manchester Derby win there. There was, I mean, there was all that fear going into the last one at Main Road that City wouldn't win, and like you would, you'd be forever tainted with that last one. But the first one at the at, at the new stadium was just as big. Yeah, what a you know magnificent day that was, and it came in a period of really poor results for City. I think they'd beaten Bolton a couple of games previously to that, but that was the first win for a few months and, you know, relegation was a real, real fear and we were coming up against the United team that were, you know, going for the title and, and very, it was a very daunting prospect playing them in those days and, you know, still is to some extent now, but quite, not not quite as much. And then, you know, to, for, for Robbie Fowler to put us a goal up after a few minutes, then John Macken to make it 2-0 and then, you know, Adam talks about the kind of pessimism of City fans there. I remember that game, Skulls gets the, the goal back for them uh, about 10 minutes before half time, going in at half time, and everyone's going, This is awful. This we're going to get beat, you know. We're still 2 1 <laughs> up, and you just felt like that was that was how it was with City in those days. It was just it was impossible to be optimistic, really. But uh, yeah, you know, Sinclair and Wright Phillips did the did the business in the second half, and that uh, that kind of was the catalyst for us staying up, I think, in the end, even though the, the run of results after that wasn't great. I think that kind of re energized the club a little bit that win, yeah. Um, TNS, uh, Locker and Grocklin, Adam. Still seared <laughs> into my mind those yeah. those three games where I'm thinking you know we get a real chance to visit some big places in Europe yeah. and that and that's where the run ends. Yeah, you got more points uh, scoring them in Scrabble than uh, playing against them in that. Yeah. But it's just t- again typical City that you know we're we're dreaming of these AC Milan and Inter Milan away days and you get Locker and uh, Cardiff well TNS via Cardiff and then Grocklin and then. There were weird kickoff times as well. Um, I, I remember just think you know trying to catch them on some dodgy. I don't even know how I consumed the away games. I went to the home ones. I just remember the the away games being weird. Um, but again, just typical city these 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 teams that you'd never even heard of, and we thought we were all going on a European tour. It turns out it was uh, more like the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> Running out of steam at City, Kevin Hegan stepped aside and his assistant, Stuart Pearce, took the reins. It started with some excitement and he nearly guided City back into the UEFA Cup, 
only just falling short in his first half season. A penalty for Manchester City. Robbie Banner against Mark Schwarzer for a place in Europe. Will it be Manchester City or Middlesbrough? He saved it. Mark Schwarzer saves the penalty. However, things would quickly take a turn for the worst and Pierce's time in charge is remembered by a lack of creativity, entertainment and goals. New Year's Day, the last time Manchester City scored a home league goal. Can Joey Barton end that famine? Barton up against Thomas Sorensen. Joey Barton! Unbelievable! Well, the goal drought goes on in the city of Manchester Stadium. Dom, we can't help avoiding talking about David James and Middlesbrough, <laughs> and like it's every time we come together that came, that seems to be on the agenda. It's absolutely bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> sort of like you know the, the universe is trying to tell you something. Um, yeah, do, do you know what? Though? But, but that's like um, it is good to flag up that things did start really well in the Stuart Pierce because it went from sort of meandering to nothing to winning. Is it eight? Eight out of nine or something ridiculous. Yeah, it was something. Like, so, it was good. It was really good. Like, like, like the sort of run that nowadays Guardiola would be like, guys, you know, be right into it. <laughs> Kiki Masampa, guys. Um, <laughs> but all in in a very much city of that era um, style. All of that good football. All of Sean Wright Phillips been you know at the peak of his powers when he went to Chelsea. All of that run gets forgotten because they finished the season with David James flailing about up front, booting everyone. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that was a an interesting time to be alive. Yeah, Danny, we we've talked about this as well in the past about the the times at which Pierce ran out of steam, and <laughs> you know I I, th- I think the moment that you can pinpoint it is when Andy Cole gets injured in that following season because Cole and Vassell were working quite well together as a partnership and City were doing all right in that first half of of Pierce's first full season. As soon as Cole gets injured and he's got no answers to it, and then Cole leaves at the at, at the start of the next summer. He just spends his money badly, and they end up with that that ridiculous situation of not scoring since New Year's Day. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's strange. I mean, that that first run of game, that last run of games at the end of that season, which culminated with the Middlesbrough game. You know, it was it was disappointing to to not qualify for Europe, but it felt like the start of something. Possibly, you know, I'd. I like Stuart Pearce a lot as a player, even before he played for City, and I, I enjoyed his time his, as a player at City. And you know, he was always there in the background for Kevin Keegan. So when he took over, I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, this could be, this could be something good. And you know, the fans were right behind Pearce, weren't they at the start? You know, they give Pearce a chance and all that kind of thing. And the following season, like you say, started started quite well. Colin Colin Vassell linking up like like Colin York used to do for United. It looked like they, they formed a really good partnership. They were playing some nice football. I remember them being top four pretty early in the season, beating Aston Villa at home and going into the top four. And you're thinking, okay, we're something's good. Something good is cooking here. Like we're doing we're doing something nice. And then, like you say, it just uh, it, it frittered out towards the end of that season. We had a few players leaving, but then you think about the. Um, the preseason, uh, what was it, 2006 preseason, when we signed like, um, oh, Sam Rass had come in the previous January, hadn't he? But we signed Karadi. Um, Dick, help me out. Dick Who Dick else did we Dick sign? Returned, yeah, yeah. I, just, I remember that being really positive. You know, Hatem Trebelsi. I remember thinking, what a signing that is. Like, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been playing with this guy on Football Manager for years. Like, he's going to be brilliant. You know. And it was like, you know, Dom said earlier, we, we were bringing in these players at the wrong end of the careers and expecting miracles from them, really. And, you know, they, they'd kind of like lost their enthusiasm, lost the, the love for the game. The light had gone out in their eyes a bit, really. And, and they just couldn't bring much to the table for City. But, you know, I think um, if, if you think about Kevin Keegan being a bit tactically inept, I think Stuart Pearce 
uh, went one better in the, the latter days of his career and just had no idea what he was doing really no idea how to get these players playing football the players didn't seem to believe in him um, you know I, I always feel like that it really came to a head with, with Stuart Pearce when we got beat in the FA Cup at Blackburn and the fans yeah. were thinking you're, you're not fit to wear the shirt at Ewood Park that was like the real kind of nadir of the Pearce era and um, you know we survived relegation at the end which is no mean feat really but uh, it was uh, by the skin of our teeth and it was just a dismal dismal time to watch City unfortunately in the end if you enjoy the show please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts I mean uh, that said Adam let me let me play devil's advocate here because um, ultimately Pierce kept City up that year and mm. they stayed up I mean it was a bit harem scarum towards the end of the season, but they stayed up comfortably in the end. They were lower mid-table and they were the league's lowest scorers. So they, they must have done something <laughs> right. And as, as dull as it was, at least they were getting points when they needed yeah, them. It's some feat that. So just to come... I remember when Stuart Pearce started, we, we lost one in his first 14 games. I thought, this is the guy for us. Is and he went from having an autobiography named Psycho to having a beanie baby on the side of the pit. <laughs> so that's the kind of version we got. But going back to that end of that season, I read did like Empenza scoring like uh, three one nil victories away at like Middlesbrough, Newcastle, and somewhere else. And I think we'd won away at Fulham or something just to keep us up bizarrely. We were absolutely careering towards the trap door. And then all of a sudden, these three amazing away performances. Bear in mind, we were notoriously bad travellers around that time anyway. And then all of a sudden, we, we turn up on the road, win three games back-to-back away, and suddenly we're, we're, like you say, lower to mid-table and miles out of it. It was just kind of, where's this come from? Because it, it didn't show any signs of tactically getting us out of there. It's obviously some kind of uh, spiritual intervention rather than Stuart Pearce intervention, if you're uh, trying to look for some credit there. I think uh, M. Penza just decided he was going to drag us out single-handedly. There was a much-needed boost in the summer of 2007, a takeover by Taksin Shinawatra, the controversial former Thailand Prime Minister, and the appointment of Sven-Goran Eriksson brought excitement. Here's Ilana, finding himself in space for the first time in the game. Giovanni! Brilliant strike! That really is a bolt out of the light blue! All united, and yet... 1-0 City, Giovanni's second goal for the club. But a promising start that saw City around the Champions League places at Christmas eventually fizzled out in a comical fashion. It wouldn't have been a problem if only I knew about it or I was... I didn't know about it, but I was rather sure that that, that would happen. He could have sacked me at the end of the season, but he should never have letting us suspected that that would happen. The chairman was on the run and his assets were being frozen leaving City in financial trouble. Sven was sacked, and on the pitch, the team ended with a humiliating 8-1 defeat at Middlesbrough. There'll be another one here. It's Alves for a hat-trick. It's eight for Middlesbrough. It's a hat-trick for Afonso Alves. Embarrassment for City. Pure, unbridled joy for Middlesbrough. Dan, sometimes you allow yourself to dream and you get bitten quite badly for it, don't you? And this was one of them for me this season. 
Yeah. Keep dreaming though, kids. That's my advice too. <laughs> Never give up on the dream. Yeah. I mean, what a, you know, I'd like to think that those times, you know, of the, the tax and should archer take over and stuff like that were, were quite unenlightened times for City fans, really. We didn't really think about the bigger picture, about, you know, his human rights record in Thailand, about his financial um, insolvency or whatever you want to call it. You know, it was just a bit exciting. You know, we'd been through this period of, of City fans where we'd not seen, had a lot to shout about. You know, the club was um, on the bones of its arse at times, really. And, and yeah. were, you know, having to sell Sean Wright Phillips and things like that to keep the club afloat. We'd, we'd been through all that and to have someone come in and say, I'm going to inject a bit of money into this club and I'm going to, we're going to buy some good players. We're going to hire a good manager, you know, hiring Sven Joran Eriksson. How exciting was that at the time? That was incredible. You know, we actually, we actually had a manager who kind of knew what he was doing and could play some good football and had real pedigree. And it was, it was a really, really positive time. And, you know, the starts of the season they made, they brought in all these players that, you know, nobody had heard of, really. I remember that day when they unveiled Bianchi and Choluka and Bojinov and all that, six players or whatever it was at one time, thinking, who are these guys? But, you know, you just you just kind of got on board with it, really. And then it all, um, it kicked off with the the win at West Ham on the opening day of the season. And just like, still, you know, one of my favourite days as a City fan, that I didn't go to the game or anything, but just, just listening on the radio, just the, the excitement and the positivity that had just never been there. You know, it was like City were good for the first time in my life. We actually had yeah. a bit of, a bit of hope. I remember, you know, watching match of the day last night and just my jaw being on the floor at some of the stuff Ilana was doing. And one of my United fan mates who I was with just saying like, oh yeah, you're not used to watching good players, are you? And it was like a really <laughs> patronising thing to say, but it was also true. Like, yeah. so it was like, yeah, fair enough. And then, you know, to make that start to the season, finally scoring the goal at home against Derby, Michael Johnson, then beating United at home. I remember I was living in a shared house at the time. After three games, we were top of the league, having not conceded a yeah. goal. And I put the league table up on the wall in the shared house with all these United fans. <laughs> you know, that's how kind of small time we were at the time. Yeah. But it was just like, it was just such a great buzz, wasn't it? And, you know, like you say, it, it fritted out quite badly in the end. And, you know, Sven was sacked and taxing, uh, you know, and ended up having to sell the club and all that. But, I just remember that as a good time and I don't really think about what came afterwards. Yeah, Dom, I, I remember, um, like Dan says, those those signings. I mean, he named three there and I, off the top of my head, I was thinking Alano, Giovanni, or Luca. Um, I hadn't even thought of Bianchi and Bozhinov. Like, th- these were, th- there were so many new players that summer in, in like with with the Sven factor as well and the, the fact that City were actually spending some money. That excitement, I mean, I know it ended. Uh, I know it ended in in quite a sour way, but you can't you, you can't take that sort of excitement for granted, can you? Not when you scored ten goals at home the previous league season. No, so yeah, it was <laughs> it was like such a departure from that. I mean, Alano was just a a special player to watch. Petrov was brilliant. So the combination between those two was delightful. Stephen Island had a great season. Um, yeah, it was. I, I, I'd echo what Dan said that again. I also wasn't there, um, Upton Park, but that's widely viewed from maybe City fans of a certain vintage. Maybe it's this vintage you're all listening to now. That West Ham away <laughs> on the first day is like generally held up as just one of the great days. Great kit, sunny day. You know, B- Bianchi scored. You know, uh, probably as many goals in his City career as Erling like Haaland does on your average Saturday. <laughs> but I think that. <laughs> I think they're all really fondly remembered, aren't they? And yeah, uh, Dan's right as well. But it was it was also a weird time. I remember towards the end of the season when it was petering out in the. Um, I was sitting in the not the Colin Bell stand, the one opposite. Is that that's not, that's still not got a name, has it? So that'd be the. I um, I I never know whether they're east or west. I can never the, yeah. I can never tell you. Yeah, it's <laughs> east stand. Yeah, it's east stand. I've just done a compass in my head and gone. Yeah, east right. Nice one. Yeah, that that was that. You know, Fulham game where they let in three goals in the last twenty minutes. Yeah. And give give away a car on the pitch 
So like some companies were whatever pretty much everyone had gone home and there's just this person driving like a Nissan or something around the face. That was weird. And that game there was like loads of people in like I heart I heart taxing t shirts around us, which I believe nowadays you'd definitely call that sports washing. But um <laughs> can can you but can you sports wash when all the assets are frozen? That you're not gonna that's it's not gonna get nice and not not gonna get nice and soapy then, is it, when all the money's frozen? Um, yeah. Yeah. Just you need a bit of sports defrosting there, really, don't you? That's the uh... <laughs> <Sports> <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, you do. That yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, Adam, I mean, I, I'm sorry to come to you for the downer of this part of this season, mm. but um, well, I sorry mean, was mind the up bit then. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. like it, it, it did really, really peter out in in every way, shape, and form. And yeah. uh, like uh, the highlight of the year is obviously the, the Manchester Derby double. How do you how do you look back on that 07-08 season now? Yeah, well, I started my first job that season and my boss was a United fan and he used to love giving it to me. So the fact that we didn't have any kind of ammo that season, I just felt, oh, this is what it's like to be good, like like uh, Dan alluded to there. Um, to finally have something to be proud of, especially in a, on a local level. Um, we had the bragging rights for the first time in forever in terms of a, a league double. And it was just perfect. I think I did my Patreon special on this season as well. Yeah. Plug there for you. Uh, <laughs> just because of, of how much it meant. I think we're all kind of saying the same thing around that season was gave us some something to be hopeful for. From a statistical point of view, we, we'd gone from only scoring 10 goals at home to the following season, not losing a home game until the February. And that was Arsenal. And there was no shame in that at that point. So it was that pride element that, that we had a team to be proud of. And then obviously... Something just someone almost just pulled the plug, and it was like we were just deflated uh, towards the end of the season. But the the two derbies certainly are high. Obviously, the way we conducted ourselves in the um, Munich anniversary game, uh, it, that was kind of the Sven effect, and the way he was almost like this cool, calm, professional bloke, and it kind of exuded across the team and obviously the fan base. We were just kind of something to be proud of and something to you know be pr- pleased to represent us. So that's what I got from that. Things would change immeasurably in September 2008. Another takeover, this time by Sheikh Mansour and the Abu Dhabi United group, put City in a position to compete like never before. Yeah, it was just one of those days that uh, you don't get very often and uh, and it was very exciting for everybody involved um, and even for people who weren't that closely involved to it. uh, To understand the, the news that was coming out was great for everybody. Mark Hughes was replaced by Roberto Mancini and after several windows of heavy investment into the team, City were challenging for major honours again. Still David Silva, Mario Balotelli wouldn't have for Tevez, he does for Toure! Manchester City's semi-final hero, Yaya Toure, gives them the lead in the final. After winning the FA Cup in 2011, they won their first top flight title in 44 years in 2012. Balotelli, Aguero! Get in. 
now I know it's uncomfortably trite, Dom, to say it like this, but there is a, there's that banner that uh, gets held out among City fans sometimes that says we see, we see things they'll never see the uh, the Oasis lyric, and it's it's actually it's really hard to believe that 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 era that saw the FA Cup success and you know the first Premier League title, it's less than ten years from the moment they arrived there with Keegan and, and Grocklin and the UEFA Cup and that Newcastle game. It's, it's, it's remarkable how, how much has been packed into that first 10 years. Though. Yeah, there's also, and to be fair, David, this is a point I think you made to me first, so I'm st- stealing your, um, your thunder here, that obviously a little bit before the move to Eastlands is this is all, you know, the, the FA Cup win is what, 12 years after the Gillingham game? Um, yeah. And then Aguero is 13 years after. So you've got a fan base having a team's like absolute lowest ebb, indisputably historic lowest ebb, to its highest point, like within, like in the same generation. That is unprecedented in English football, I think. And obviously, we know that a big reason for that is is that all the money that came in. But nevertheless, you know, the the money changes, the owner change, but the people going to watch their football club every week weekend doesn't change they're just people who've been going to go watch a team wearing a blue shirt and yeah that that change is unprecedented I think it's disorientating I think it's even now it's part of the reason of why you know maybe some City fans will get more hit up about what certain things are written what fans of other clubs or pundits say about the team because it, it's, it, it's, it was a head spinning period you know you'll you'll never see anything like that ever again to um to coin a phrase, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dan. The um, uh, given what had happened previously, though, were you, were you ever sceptical of the two thousand and eight takeover? You ever, we did you ever think, well, this is City, so obviously we we messed this up? Not initially, no. I mean, I remember the, the whirlwind of the day when it all happened when we were taken over and we signed Rabinho. Like, you didn't have time to really think about the the, the bigger picture there or the or the potential consequence of it. It was just, you know, we'd been through this period with, with, with taxing where we, we didn't know what, what the future held for the club. You know, his assets have been frozen. We didn't know how serious that was going to be for the for the future of the club. And suddenly we've got these like fairy tale benefactor comes in and says, you know, we're going to spend um, all this money on you. We're going to make you the richest club in the world. And look, we bought you Rubinho and it's, uh, you know, it's all happening very quickly. And, you know, the initial euphoria of that wore off quite quickly, I think. And that season, you know, was, was, was a pretty poor season, which ended with, uh, you know, mid table finish, but, you know, it was a bit hairy at times. It looked like we might've been, might've been going down. And for me, it was really the following summer when the project really started to take shape. Um, when we signed like Gareth Barry, you know, I'm signing Carlos Tevez and thinking, like not only have we signed one of the best players in the world here, but we've signed a player from under United's noses. Like this is serious. We are a serious prospect here. We're here to stay. And again, you know, that season started really well. Um, it wasn't amazing. You know, Mark Hughes lose this job in the middle of the season being taken over by Roberto Mancini. In the end, we couldn't quite make it into the Champions League, but you could feel some forward momentum there. And like, you know, like I said about Saxon earlier, it, it, it was on enlightened times, really. You didn't really think about the wider implications of the Abu Dhabi takeover, um, what it meant in a geopolitical sense or anything like that. I, don't, I think it was a few years before anybody started to really think about that and kind of have those conversations. Initially, it was just all about what they were bringing to City. And, it, you know, it was, a, it was a very exciting time. Yeah. Adam, for you... Um... When did you notice the mood change from uh, sort of like City being the plucky little underdog, even now <laughs> suddenly the, the the plucky rich underdog, to suddenly one that's like, hey, hang on, we're, we are actually going to win some things here? Yeah, I think Bancini coming in was the changing. I noticed a change in play 
uh, in Mancini's first game at the Etihad. Um, and I, I think it was against Stoke, I think. And I just remember that was the first time that I'd noticed a significant change in play from one manager to the next. Obviously, we've had different managers over the years and they have different styles, but the kind of they were playing with a, some ki- a, a kind of plan and a pattern uh, rather than just the style of play. It was like, a, and I, re- I that's what the point when I thought, actually, we, we're serious about this now. We're, we're attracting the right players, the right managers, and this is probably the time when we're really going to kick on now. But I also noticed that what came with that, of being the plucky little underdog and everyone's second favourite team, to suddenly being the most hated team in the country and constantly having to go into bat for the owners and things like that. So that era tarnished with obviously the amazing memories and I don't apologise for anything for being a fan of this club uh, it's well documented the kind of what what came with it off the pitch but it was I associate that era of, of you know really supporting a decent football footballing team coming with the the need to be having to constantly defend or apologise or feel a little bit guilty about the club we support and I, I make no apologies for that in terms of not feeling that guilty but I remember it slightly being coming hand in hand with that you get all these riches on the pitch, and you're now the hated, the most hated team off the pitch. And you're out, you're on message boards, you're on forums, you're on Twitter, having to defend your position as a supporting fan when we've been through the rubbish, and now we were reaping the fruit of it. Yeah, Dom for for that title win as well in in 2012. I mean that uh, that could be a, a an era of all of its own. The the that season, um, but it, it was it was almost like. It was the culmination of kind of like three or four years work in in that season. It was you, you could see the development from each stage of from two thousand eight to twenty twelve. Like every year, things got slightly better, and you could see the the the, the kind of line of progression, couldn't you? Yeah, I, I totally agree with Adam that Mancini coming in was like, ah, oh, right. So this is what this is what the yeah. football team sounds yes, like. Exactly. Um, that. I, 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 <laughs> Because I remember reading an interview that Vincent Company did, I think, with the City website about a month after Mancini had been there, and he was like waxing lyrical about how they were doing lots of work without the ball and like shape and positioning. And it was like, ah, isn't this what like all them good teams in Italy used to do? All, <laughs> yeah, all of it. So, so, so that that was nice. But yeah, I mean, the, that that twenty eleven twelve season, I think you could probably do about five eras within the season, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, with um, with the penultimate era ending with the defeat away at Arsenal, and then the um, that run towards the finish line, um, where it's just so the 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 thing is the the Aguero moment understandably swallows everything, but there is there are so many great moments in that little running. Um, like it's like um, like Aguero scoring early on against West Brom on the night that United lost to Wigan, who was like where basically it felt like the ground had kind of given up, but. Aguero hadn't, and I think Zabaleta scored that night, and he's obviously got to get someone going again. There was a Torres goals at um at St James's. It, yeah, there was the, obviously uh, the Tevez dark, at Norwich. Yeah, Tevez. Tevez coming back. Yeah, the um, the inter team goal of the season competition at Norwich, which is now funny <laughs> because when they show the highlights of the club website, they cut off the commentary of the final goal scorer. Um, <laughs> the win, winning the derby. I the best goal as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's so many good goals in that game. Um, but yeah, just to go all the way back to the start, because there's something I've looked up during that because the Robinho signing day, the takeover day. Um, so I'd, I'd just started working at the press association at that point, and being in the newsroom that day was like obscene. Like you were sort of on acid or something. It was just bizarre <laughs> what was going on. Um, so I went on that night, and one of my housemates at the time, still a really good mate, is a, was a Stoke fan. Still is a Stoke fan, and Tony Pulis was doing his normal thing of doing a bit of a 
supermarket sweep on deadline day. So we were sitting up watching Sky Sports News for the deadline. And I'm there waiting for us to get Rubinho over the line, which we did. And I know he was up waiting for about three Stoke signings. And they were Tom Soares, Danny Higginbottom and Michael Tong. <laughs> and we signed Rubinho. So at that moment straight away, it's like God, we've gone completely off grid here, haven't we? Because yeah. we... A year earlier, we a year earlier we'd have been going tooth and nail for Danny Higginbottom, wouldn't we? Yeah, we yeah. we are we are suddenly the other half. How we are oh. living, yeah, <laughs> mental. And we yeah. would have lost out for him as well, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After Roberto Mancini's sacking, things started brightly for his replacement, Manuel Pellegrini. City won a league and cup double in 2014. And Manchester City have done it! Premier League champions for 2013-2014! But by the time he left in 2016, there was a sense the club had underachieved. They hadn't been able to maintain title challenges in two of his three seasons, and only made fourth place in his final campaign on goal difference. I think that uh, was very important for me to finish my cycle here at the club, qualifying the team for the next uh, Champions League, and finish a season that I think that was a good season, a good season because we won the Capital One. Even Pep Guardiola's arrival didn't spark City into life straight away. So I don't train the tackles. What's tackles? Yeah, it's another aspect of the football, but at the end, we're not going to win or lose for the tackles. Now, Dan, obviously Pellegrini um, won that League and Cup double in his first season. It was a fantastic season, that that 13-14 year. However, the second season, he was, in many ways by the end of that season, was quite lucky not to have been sacked, uh, possibly only not sacked by knowing what was going on behind the scenes. The, his third season started really well, and then the fact that they only just got over the line for a Champions League place on goal difference on the final day. And then Guardiola comes in, and you're thinking, OK, well, they've got they've got Pep now, let's let's go and see what they can do. And they they again, they really struggle at times, trying to just implement what's going on. Was there ever a part of you that was worried that City were blowing it. They 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 had this opportunity with with resources like never seen before, and you were like, "Is this it? Is this all you're going to do?" Well, yeah, I mean, definitely in those those second and third uh, years under Pellegrini, I felt like that. I mean, the first season was of great seasons, you say. Uh, some great football played. I mean, it, I think we are, uh, history has been kind to Pellegrini in a way and that Liverpool really bottled that season. And, you know, we might have not won the league that, that year had they not done that. And then his, his it puts a very different complexion on, on his time at the club because his second season wasn't very good. I don't think the, um, the transfer restrictions in that summer that they had because of the financial fair play uh, thing, I, th- I don't think that helped, you know, the City weren't able to really kick on and strengthen from a position of, of strength. And then the third season, I mean, maybe he could have gone towards the end of that second season, actually. I remember the, the Derby defeat at Old Trafford sort of late in the season, thinking like, this guy's got to go. It's, it's- yeah, I think there was a run of, um, it was something like six defeats in eight games. Yeah. There was, there was one away to Burnley in that run that was very bad. Yeah. Um, I remember watching that in a pub yeah. in London with a raging hangover, which might be more the reason why I thought it was such a bad performance. But I think I think in my sort of sort of a sorry state that day, I was keen for him to get sacked. 
but that, <laughs> that might not be all Pellegrini's work. Well, I was in Australia at the time of that game, and I left the party to watch that game at five o'clock in the morning. And I've never had you know a come down quite like it than watching City lose one nil at Burnley or whatever it was. It was horrible. So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was just very dull and un- un- insipid and quite uninspiring the football. And I think. They probably got wind of the fact that Guardiola was quite interested in coming in the summer of 2016. And they kind of thought, well, we can get rid of Pellegrini now and hire someone for one season, but what good is that going to do? We might as well just stick with this guy for the rest of his contract now. So that kind of third season was a bit of a kind of, a bit of a zombie season really, which, yeah, he just about got us over the line into the Champions League at the end, but it wasn't pretty. It wasn't enjoyable a lot of the time. And it did feel like a bit of uh, a bit of wasted potential. And then, yeah, like you say, Pep comes in and, you know, the first season under Pep, wasn't great at all, you know. The, he made a good start to the season, but um, the the task, the scale of the task that he had was uh, was pretty stark at that point, and it took a bit of uh, you know time for him to get rid of some of the older heads in the squad, get some new players in players that he he wanted to work with and knew that he could he could make work, and um, you know the rest is history really. But there was definitely a time in that first season under Pep where I thought, is this actually going to go the way we all ex- anticipated it, uh, expected it would? This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. That first Guardiola season, I mean, you would put your mortgage on there being if there was one team that could break Guardiola's like winning streak, <laughs> it would be City, wouldn't it? That's how that's how it works. And then at the end of that season, we're, we're sitting there thinking, God, it's coming true. It's actually coming true. Yeah. So this hot take of, uh, I know I'm on record of, with many hot takes, that Guardiola first season this sounds so spoiled and entitled, was one of my worst supporting season supporting City. And I think it's because what you alluded to there <laughs> uh, previously, David, but it was around a previous few seasons, that we've got all the... I, it was the worst kept secret that everything was geared towards Pelle, uh, to Guardiola coming in. The infrastructure of the training ground, the people on the board who were in place to bring Guardiola in, the the way we were trying to play through the systems for each age group. It was all centred around Guardiola coming in and winning everything. And then when you get hit with that first season, I was just like, is this it? Like this is as far as we're going to get. You might win the odd cup, but literally this whole infrastructure was for this one man and he's coming and bizarre. This sounds stupid now. Please play it in context because I know what can happen. <laughs> I was I was massively <laughs> underwhelmed by this genius that has come in and we've just turned him into, you know, just average Joe. And I, I just thought, oh, we're never going to make it to the absolute elite level. Luckily, looking back now, that's ridiculous. But at that time, in context, I just remember being thoroughly just underwhelmed by the whole thing. And that's, I feel like a brat saying that now, but that's where I was at. When the aggregators get hold of Stat City now, <laughs> ruined internet on fire. <laughs> Since 2017, Pep Guardiola has changed the face of English football. Forward by De Bruyne, Gabriel Jesus wins it with the last kick of the season. 100, a century right at the end. Record broken and broken again. City won four Premier League titles in five seasons, including one with a record-breaking 100 points and another that went alongside FA Cup and League Cup successes. Elkai Gundogan reach out and touch it! Beyond all reasonable doubt, it's 
After missing out in 2020, City won back-to-back titles again in the following two seasons. Any doubts Guardiola would struggle in England were well and truly put to bed. Now, Dom, it's it's hard to kind of I think overstate the impact that Guardiola's had in, in in England, just purely because up until he did it in in 2018 and 2019, nobody had won back-to-back titles in in a decade, and then he's done it twice in that period. He, he missed out the next season, then did it again just for fun, and you kind of like like he has reshaped what your expectations are of a good season at the start of a, 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 when you come to August, like what you want from the season. It, it's just, it, it, he's blown it out of the water. So that, that last bit reshaped my expectations for, for a musical bed. That was a, that was a jaunty number. Wasn't it? <laughs> like that one. I, I, I spent uh, a long time looking for that. <laughs> I, is it, I, I think I can't have been the only one bopping my head about that. Um, yeah. He, uh, sorry. What was the question? No, um, he, <laughs> Obviously, with Guardiola's success, um, and certainly as long as various investigations into finances go on, there will be sort of, it'll get spoken about in a certain context, but obviously City don't have to look too far down the road to see what massive spending and wage bills doesn't necessarily get you. Um, You know, I think you look at this season now where you have, you know, City and Liverpool kind of, beat the brakes off each of the last season in that run in the it was brutal. Um and they both suffered, but look at where Liverpool have gone this season and look at where City have. And it's the the standards he set are phenomenal. And to keep going back and doing that and doing it again. And the the fact that I've seen some people saying this year that oh Arsenal might win the league with with ninety points. Like the once upon a time, ninety points was the yeah. was the absolute top end. Like, like the um, like I think that I mean, actually, I know the twenty twelve the, the City won it on goal difference when City and United both got eighty nine points, and that was like whoa, you know, seriously going hell for leather. <laughs> so yeah, he's 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 redefined what can be normal and can be expected, and yeah, part of that will is undoubtedly down to resources, but the manner in which he plays football, you know, we're, you know, on this podcast every week, people talking about a 3-2 build-up and sort of box midfields. He, he brought all this in, but it isn't the sort of mumbo-jumbo that idiots like Dean Saunders might like to say it is. It actually works, and it's worked in English football when people said it never would work. And and that, that I think that's the best sign of Guardiola's success, is the constant moving of goalposts for him, that like, oh, you can't play like that in England. Oh, you can Oh, you can't. Can you get back-to-back titles though? Yeah. All right. Oh, and it's, there's always. An, oh, have you won the Champions League? Well, no. But here's a couple more league titles. Yeah. It's. Um. I think whatever happens now in the Guardiola era, it's. It will look better with time. Outcomes of investigations pending. I appreciate, but th- what he's done on the football field is, it's just gargantuan stuff. Yeah. Um. Dan, of of his titles is the one that you can pick out as your favourite, given that every single one of them, all four of them, are in in many ways different. Like they, they, City achieve something different in each one of them. Is there one of them that stands out for you as that's the one for me? I 
think 2018-19, probably because we also won the the two domestic cups and unprecedented domestic treble and so far unrepeated. People take that for granted a little bit. Um, and just the way that Liverpool ran us so close in that you know, end of the season, you know, people look at that that game we had with them in the January of 2019 and what a high quality game of football it was. And, you know, it really was. And it was just, you know, nerve wracking, but they held, held it the nerve all the way to the end and I won the league and obviously the, the 100 point season the year before was fantastic as well but we, we pretty much won that uncontested it felt like really you know what was it 19 points ahead of United we finished which is uh, still the biggest uh, the biggest gap between first and second I think as well isn't it so yeah. and obviously the ones that have come afterwards were, you know that even the COVID one was, was satisfying because it, it was just kind of bouncing back to the top and and the one last season again Liverpool ran us really close to the end but yeah I think 2018-19 I think you know people can say whatever they want about City there's nothing that we haven't heard already, you know, it's, it's water off a duck's back at this point. But the one thing that rattles me more than anything is when people say, oh, it's easy for City to win the Premier League. You know, it's almost like par for City to win the Premier League. And it's like, it's never been easy. It never will be easy to win a league title, you know, especially in a league as packed full of quality managers and players as the Premier League is and teams with so much money. And the way that Guardiola has won those league titles playing fantastic football for the most part, it's just been so impressive and, you know, Dom's spot on about his legacy there. I think his legacy for me is that he's made me understand football on a different level than I did before and think about football a different way and, and, and change the way the game of football is played in England in, in quite a significant way as well. So, you know, whether he wins the Champions League or not is neither here nor there for me because I think he's just been, he's done wonders. Yeah. Adam, For uh, Dan's mentioned it there. Um, uh, it, does it feel like he needs to win the Champions League to complete this era, to, like, like to, to, to get rid of any possibility of any <laughs> criticism whatsoever? Yeah, but uh, Pep himself has said that even if he wins it, it's going to be a failure because you've not won two, you've not won three. I yeah. think the rules are different for him. And uh, Dan's hit the nail on the head, you know, regardless of what he does, he's a genius, his legacy. I think he's, he's, he's going to be one of those stories that only gets better with time when you look back and you're not winning back-to-back trophies and you're not winning 15, 14, 15, 16 games at a time. Um, but yeah, the Champions League is the nice to have. I I used to think that, when he wins that, no one's got to stick to beat us with. But I think because he's rewritten the rule book so many times, it'll just be you've got to win two, you've got to win three, you've got to win it without Haaland, you've got to win it without Messi, as if managers can just go on the pitch and win the win the cup themselves. So it won't be, it won't certainly City fans won't hold him in that esteem or any less esteem if he doesn't win it. But I think it's it's an easy stick to beat him with whilst he's not won it. Yeah, and yeah, it'd have ticked all those boxes in 2021 without Messi, without Haaland. But then he decided to try and win it without a holding midfielder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can he win it with a holding midfielder? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's there's one thing that I want to finish with now because uh, just before we started, I. Um, well, I, I'm not going to dress it up. I asked Chat GPT to write us a poem uh, about City <laughs> being at the Etihad for 20 years. Um, and uh, as if to prove that the machines are not taking over anytime soon, <laughs> um, I'm going to read that poem for you now. Okay. Love it. In the heart of Manchester stands a home so grand, a fortress where the city faithful make their stand. <laughs> for 20 years, the Etihad has been the place to be, a symbol of the club's ambition for all to see. The dawn of a new era, a new stadium in place, a new chapter in the club's illustrious race. From humble beginnings, the Etihad grew to become a mecca for fans, old and new. The sky blue seats, the pristine pitch so green, the roar of the crowd, the electric atmosphere so keen. The Etihad was more than just a stadium, you see. It was a temple of football, a place of victory. 
From the glory of Aguero's last-minute strike to the dominance of the Centurions so alike, the Etihad was witness to City's greatest feats, a place where legends were born and history repeats. And as the 20-year mark is reached with pride, we look back on the memories that weave inside, the highs and lows, the laughter and tears, the moments that we'll cherish for years. So here's to the Etihad, our home so dear, a place where the sky is always clear. For 20 years, it's been our footballing shrine, and for 20 more, it will remain divine. You know, you put that next to Higgy's poem about Javier Garrido's free kick against Wolves and... You see why the machines can't, <laughs> the, the machines can't take over from true artistry. Am I the only one who thought, thought that was quite good? I'm I've got a low bar when it comes to poetry, but yeah, that was I, shit. I could imagine, mate. It was shit. I can imagine David Threlfall reading that with, uh, yeah, with uh, the uh, stirring music twang. in the background, the montage of the big screen at the Etihad. Like, yeah. you know, I, I could see that happening. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was a look back at the last 20 years of football at the Etihad. Uh, we're going to squeeze in a quick listener question to finish. Get them in for next week at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can email through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, that's exactly what Andy's done. He says, two things. First off, having lived through the run-in with Liverpool in 2019 and again last season, I've discovered that I actually live for the high-pressure games at the end of the season. I used to get really stressed, but what's the point? These are the games that we're here for and winning them is what makes it all worth it. But that said... Does the FA Cup semi-final give City a problem later down the line? It replaces the Brighton away game and having a championship side at Wembley between the second leg with Bayern and the home game with Arsenal is probably a positive. However, it means we'll have a tough game at Brighton inserted later into the season, possibly in the final week. How do you feel about that and West Ham being potential catch-up games? It reminds me of Pellegrini's title in 2014, where we were always two to three games behind Liverpool. Um... Rachel, this is a, this is very much. I, I guess the, the the kind of motive behind this question is: uh, Are you happy to kick the can down the road for a bit? It's the longest question I've ever heard, <laughs> but uh, but the answer is yes. Because, like you say, this is the business end of the season. These are the games that count. I think it'll be really interesting. You know, the, the draw against Sheffield United is pretty interesting because obviously they've got um, a chance of a trophy. But more important to them is going to be promotion, and their form has dropped off a little bit now. Middlesbrough have crept up, so that all second automatic promotion price isn't guaranteed is it so be really interesting to see what they do and how their their approach to the game is champions league you know games now and 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 the the, the league's obviously still on we're used to playing every three four days at the business end of the season so and, and that's the you know where hopefully having our, our strength in depth um in the squad will come into its own so no bring it on i say yeah, Richard. The um, I, I guess not having to to have that Brighton game right before the Arsenal game because Brighton, Brighton, I, I feel like will give City a real test, and I I, I guess that's a, a, a little positive. But also the Sheffield United draw. City have gone out in the FA Cup semi final a lot recently purely because they've drawn a really good team in a run of games where they've all been must win. Yeah, um, I mean the. I agree with Rachel, like, and the point in the question from Andy that it's like this is where you want to be. So, whatever that means for the fixtures, like, we're at the risk of stripping things back to like too basic a level, the amount of games we've got left in the season and the Premier League being as it is, you're going to play a good team at some point and have to beat them. And it's the same for Arsenal; they will play some good teams yet, um, and like wherever that falls, so be it. Like. It, 
I draw, I think, the um, was it 13, 14, the comparison was made in either you said it or the question. Yeah. Me. I think I, I draw more of a comparison for many reasons between 18, 19. Um, but for the, the purposes of this question, Leicester felt somewhat like Brighton will do. Do you remember when we, we played Leicester at home? A, a game out from the end of the season, the, the company goal game. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and Leicester came into that game in great form. Brendan Rodgers had, had really got them playing and it looked a really hard game and it was a really hard game. But City won it. And that that's just... It's, it's, what, it's what you have to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's part and parcel of, um, of being there. And if, you know... City will go into almost any game that they play as the better team on paper, and they, they've got to make that count. Yeah. So be well, it, bring it got, on. The Brighton game's hard, but we, we've still got to play a load of relegation candidates. You know, we've got to play West Ham, we've got to play Leeds, we've got to play Everton. You know, th- 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 these teams will all be fighting for their lives. So yeah, there, there will be no easy games in the Premier League between now and the end of the season. You know, you, you it, even. You know, I don't think many people have got nothing to play for, or have they? Um, you know, I think it can go up to as high as 12 in the Premier League that really could get sucked into a, a relegation battle because it's so close. So, so yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's, there are no easy games. It's that simple. And realistically, if we're going to win all three trophies, we've got to win every game now. Yeah. Do I think we've got the capability to do that? Don't know, because we've not... That's the one thing that I would say this season is that unlike other seasons, we've not been that consistent and we haven't necessarily put a run together. I think, I'm sure I read the other day, the most get league games we've won in in succession is four this season. And I thought, that can't be right. Uh, you know, but when you think about the, the title runs we've gone on in the past where we've won sort of 13, 14 games straight in succession, nowhere near that level this season. Um, yeah. It it gets worse as well because it's actually three the longest winning run. Uh, they can make it, yeah they wow. can they can make it four against Liverpool in the next game. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, Richard, can you enjoy it the running? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it, it obviously is nervy. I think we've been there so many times now that it's slightly less stressful than it used to be. So I mean, eighteen nineteen was maybe the. Even more than 11-12, I think, 18-19, I felt sick going into like the, each of the final four games. That that Burnley game away in 18-19, where we won 1-0, because where the ball only crossed the line by about like a millimetre or something oh, stupid. Yeah. Um, that game, I felt absolutely awful for the entirety of it. Um, I think now, a little bit less so, maybe because I don't dislike the other team that can win the league as much as I did back in 18-19 or in other previous seasons <laughs> where, we've, where we've been in a, in a tight title race. Um, but yeah, I suppose this is the advantage that City have got, you know, extrapolating that out to like players. This is the slight advantage City have got over Arsenal, sort of, as a, as a whole. City yeah. have been there and done that in these title races and Arsenal haven't, so I'm still putting my hopes on a on the fact that they might crack in a way that we came to know Liverpool never would. Yeah, but it's it's funny. Like the thing it does remind me of of thirteen fourteen about Rachel is is that when you think of of that Liverpool side from Brendan Rodgers that year, they seemed imperious, and we kept saying they'll just they'll, they'll have to they're going to have to drop points, and they just don't look like dropping points. And then Chelsea happened at Anfield, and then Crystal Palace happened yeah. at uh, yeah. at Sellers Park. These things happen in a title race, and yeah, sure, well, it they- might it might be City on the receiving end this year, but. We know the evidence is that City, when the pressure's on, tend to perform. Yeah, it was the same in 2012 when we won it for the first time. If you remember, 
I'm sure United dropped points. They, they went and lost at Wigan and then they dropped points at home to Everton late on, didn't they? And that let us, that's what let us back in. That's all we need. That's all we need is that little that little sniff and, and we'll be back in again. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously the game against Arsenal is going to be absolutely critical, isn't it? It's going to be huge. And, and, and I know now what the build-up will be, the media build-up will just be insane. But, um, you know, again, massive game but those are the games that as fans we absolutely love and you know I, I will be nervous as hell that night now no doubt but a, a weird part of me will will enjoy it as well because you know how can you not enjoy that nothing against the likes of Aston Villa on a Sunday afternoon in in January but you're not getting the same kind of buzz are you so no. you need those games though to to take the edge off the games like the Arsenal's and Liverpool's where, yeah. where everything's on the line you need those games yeah. sometimes where you can turn up and just go oh I just want to watch a good performance against a team that we should beat <laughs> yeah but I thought that against Brentford and Everton as well so look what look what happened <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Don't, don't count those chickens right so yeah. that brings us to the end of this week's Blue Moon podcast thank you very much for listening and thank you to my guests for this one Richard Burns thank you very much david and rachel hurdson thanks for having me i'll be back next week to preview the game with liverpool so i'll see you then that was the blue moon podcast please give the show a rating and a review where you can and don't forget you can listen without the ads by signing up to our patreon You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. I honestly think it's up there with the best Swansea City goals I've ever seen as well. It is. It was just unbelievable. That that season we played some really, really good football under Graham Potter. It was such a shame that he went so, so early, to be honest. Uh, but obviously, uh, I don't think anybody really begrudged him going to Brighton at the time. It was a bit of a project. And I mean... Well, I'd say look at him now, but I'm not sure how well he's doing at Chelsea <laughs> at the minute. But, um, but yeah, what a goal. I mean, that that, that that's about all Selena did for us. It was that, and he slipped and missed a horrendous penalty at West Brom, I believe. He used to play for City, didn't he? he did. um, yeah, he yeah, did. Came, came to our academy. Yeah, somebody I knew, like who'd scouted him was just raving about him and thought he was thought he was going to make it and thought he was going to be brilliant and uh, so I always sort of kept my eye on him and then he came up against us in this game and absolutely tore us a new one that's an incredible incredible goal to put Swansea 2-0 up and you just did think dear God we're never going to we're never going to get out of this we're never going to win we got through by two massively massively dubious decisions that shouldn't have gone our way but you take them don't you you can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast and join us again next time for another episode.